he says, um, come to stay here, it's very comfortable for him, very easy. And he obviously has very little to do in terms of uh, the normal jobs he does in time. He's very busy running his own monastery and overseeing many other monasteries. So he's very busy here, it's like a rest for him from that. And the monastery here is well supported, people bring food and look after us every day. And the monks here are practicing well, so they're doing what they should to make his stay comfortable. They're looking after him very well, so that's, again, that makes it comfortable. Um, then he says, I am running the monastery, so he doesn't have to worry about that. And I'm doing all this translation, so he doesn't have to worry about that. He says, Australia is a very peaceful country, you know, especially out here in the countryside. It's very peaceful, there's nothing to worry about. Or, disturb us. So all these external factors are all there to say, make this trip very peaceful. Um, and he says he's inspired, it's impressive to see people come in every day to listen to the Dhamma, to meditate, to offer arms. And he says at the moment Thailand knew the political situation to be unstable as a one or two bombs. So, you know, compared to Thailand coming here is quite restful and quite Pleasant. Have you seen those wild animals yet? Just staying in the monastery, there's a lot of animals. Because at night they're all coming out, you just walk around and you can see different animals. But there's also um, the lay people have taken him because he's brought a lot of monks with him, taking him out to Healsville, seeing the native animals there, in the Melbourne Zoo, so they've seen the animals, the Thai elephants and things they've got there. Um, as a lay person, what's the best way of keeping up with the Dharma practice and, you know, staying up with the meditation? You have to bring these eightfold part, the practice of the path up in your daily life. So try to be one that's practicing Dharma regularly, supporting the monastery, you know, attending functions, doing different things to help the monastery is a very good way to, to practice generosity and keep close to the teaching, then to use mindfulness you know, in your daily life to be mindful of precepts, what you're saying, what you're doing to keep your your actions, your speech wholesome and harm, harmless. Um, and then try to develop mindfulness in your daily life, what you're doing, you know, your work, your duties that you have to perform in your daily life. Always try and use mindfulness to um, have present moment awareness and do, do the jobs that you have to do in the best way you can with your mindfulness. And of course, when you get a chance to meditate and really um, develop your mindfulness in a very refined way when, when you have that chance. And also, how to deal with um, restlessness and uh, sleepiness in the meditation session. Sometimes the mindfulness isn't strong For dealing with sleepiness and lethargy of mind, you need to really use the mind. These qualities of Vitaka, which are initial and sustained application, that's the thinking mind, and you're applying the thinking mind to an object. So chanting is a very good way to overcome sleepiness. You're giving your mind something to concentrate on. You have a chant that you have to remember or you read and you focus on the words and you, as you chant, if you chant for a while continuously, that concentration and the stimulus of having to remember those words, say those words, will, will stir the mind so it's awake.
second, um, or you just reduce it down to a one word like Bhutto or Bhutto or Dhamma or Sanko, and you keep using this word to, to waken the mind up and focus your, your the thinking mind on that one word and just keep reciting it silently. Um, for restlessness and agitation, he said use um, contemplation, meaning you use just contemplate the Dhamma. Uh, particularly the impermanence of life, contemplating oh, our life is very uncertain, we don't know how long we'll be li- living in this world and we, maybe you get to hear some news, someone you know has died or a relative's died or you read the newspaper, somebody's died and you sit, when you get that news or hear about that then you bring that back to reflect on your own life you think, oh, I'm going to die too I can't be sure how long I've got um, I've got to really train my mind, put my mind into effort, put effort into developing mindfulness in my meditation. And when you contemplate like this, see the impermanence of life, see the impermanence of your thoughts, your moods, the different experience we have. Contemplating like this tends to calm the mind down from its restlessness. And the things that normally make it restless, they seem less important because you know, well, in the end, it's all impermanent. And that's a good way to, again, for preparing your mind for meditation. If you're sitting in meditation, you find it very restless, agitated, you think like it's contemplate like this, just to, to calm the mind down. Just during the day, like, um, busy at work and then I depart after work and study your head. So when it comes home, it's, it's better to, it's not to do samadhi, but to contemplate on things, is it? Um, yeah, this is a very good technique for dealing with, say, the tiredness of the body uh, from having worked all day and sent your mind out, having to think and do different things. So when you start meditating at night, say so you come back, then contemplation is a good way to begin to prepare the mind. You start contemplating the Dhamma and Sometimes you'll find just contemplating like this, thinking it through, brings you to the point where your mind usually becomes peaceful. And when it's peaceful, there's knowing, there's mindfulness. And that's enough. That's, that's what you want. You want to establish that state of knowing. Other times, you contemplate just to get through the initial restlessness of the mind, and then you maybe turn to the breath. When your mind is calmed down a bit, then you turn to the breath to make the mind more stable, more develop more refined knowing. So, either way, your, your aim is to develop a peaceful state of mind where you have constant mindfulness and samadhi. So, whichever works is fine. Anybody else have any questions? Any question about the length of our breath? If our breath is very short, what should we do if we're meditating and feel the breath is very short? Uh, and again, just said, don't have to worry about whether it's short or long, you just know, oh, now the breath is short, or now the breath is long. And just allow it to flow naturally. If naturally the mind, the, the body is breathing quite shallow breaths, quite short breaths, that's okay. You just let it carry on like that. Don't try and control the breath and make it a certain way, make it long or make it short, because then you, it'll be difficult to meditate. So sometimes when I meditate, I don't know whether I... Sometimes I can tell I fell asleep, sometimes I can tell, I couldn't tell whether I really fall asleep or not. It's kind of weird. There are many methods for dealing with sleepiness when you're meditating, as he explained earlier. 
often to give the mind some work, something to put its attention on. So chanting is a very good one like that. You, you chant, you're, you're stimulating the mind as you chant and the recollection of the words. But the meaning of the words and the actual act of chanting can wake you up. Um, there are other methods one can um, focus on light, bring up a perception of light to brighten the mind to get through the sleepiness. One can literally stand up, you know, wash one's face, change posture, and a good one, especially in the monastery, people do is they walk. They walk meditation when they're very sleepy, and the walking obviously can wake you up. However, <coughs> uh, if you've you've tried all of that and whatever you do, you know you're really tired and sleepy. It possibly is a sign that the body is tired and it needs sleep. You know, especially if it's say uh, you've worked very hard for a long time, you can feel sleepy. So then it might be appropriate to rest, actually go to bed. But when you're falling asleep, establish mindfulness, maybe breathe in, breathe out until you drop off and establish the awareness in your mind. When I've had a good rest, uh, wake up, then I'll carry on my meditation. Uh, so even having a sleep can sometimes be the only, only best way to deal with it. Yeah, um, what I was trying to ask with Sometimes I realize that that's because sometimes, like, um, you know, when I was sitting down the floor, I meant to, and I was kind of like, I hear the sound, but, but when I had to think about it, I didn't actually, like, process, you know, what comes into the year. You know, I, it's kind of like, maybe, is it a half sleep? <laughs> I don't know. You're aware of it. Yeah, I aware of the sound and everything. But you don't know what's being said. Really. Yeah. The meaning of it. So I'm not quite sure. Maybe I, I'm kind of half sleep or something. Do you have mindfulness when when you're in that state? Do you um, know your mind. Mind. Do you know what's going on from moment to moment? Yeah. Sometimes I do. Um, uh, aware. You know what happened around and the sound, but I didn't really process until I. I aware, you know, what is the sound, and then I start process, you know, the the sound, what it is, and things like that. And then I guess maybe I just start work up. I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like your your mindfulness is not sustained, and you're losing your mindfulness, and even heading towards a state of falling asleep or daydreaming. So your aim is to raise the level of your mindfulness, put more effort, more effort into your posture, and more effort into brightening the mind, making it firm and clear. How do you straighten back? Because if I really tend to straighten my back, you know, when I start to relax, I just want to again. That, that's probably a sign that you're falling asleep when it does sleep like that. You know. If you're awake and alert and you'll be putting, actually putting effort into your posture, it will stay. You can't really always relax you, you have to really In the beginning, you just establish awareness and establish a good, firm, straight posture. But once you've established that, you don't have to keep worrying about your posture. But you can go to mindfulness, say it's the breath, you keep putting your mindfulness on your breathing. And if you are mindful and continuously mindful, naturally your posture will maintain itself and you won't have to worry about it. So you know, don't make it a cause of suffering for what am I what's my posture doing? The mindfulness, putting attention on mindfulness will do that for you, will naturally adjust your posture and keep it straight. Okay. So just one more thing uh, that you 
The main reason we get caught into <coughs> wanting food and thinking about food is just habit. We're doing it every day, and so naturally our mind falls into that habit very quickly. It's a difficult habit to break or even see. But the best way to observe it is to do a little experiment. Say, if you eat three meals a day and decide this next meal I'm not going to have it. I'll, I'll, I'll not have it as a, a deliberate act and you do it with mindfulness, awareness and a sense of truthfulness that you're, you're true to your resolution okay I'm not going to have this meal to see what it does to the mind as a, as a process of investigation 
and you might find that you know, some desire arises, but you get through to the next day or whatever when it's time to eat again, and you find, mm, well, I didn't die, and you realise, you know, even though you have desire for food, you don't have to follow it every time. You well, you know, I'm going to die and not suffer very much in this one meal, and. Some practitioners, in particular in monasteries, they might practice this for much longer periods. You know, some people have even fasted for a month. And at the end of that, you know, they might be weak and uh, a bit thinner, but they know mm, they can go without food for a month and still not die. And that you, from this you get a new perspective on that desire. And, but you, the way to do it is always to be very firm in your and truthful to your wish to train the mind, to develop mindfulness and if you do do something like say you're going to miss a meal, you know, be, be truthful to that and don't sort of say I'll do it and then halfway through you'll sneak a, a bite of food or something. Try and do it as a genuine part of your practice and this way you get more experience in understanding your mind, seeing desire arise and pass away. You'll see it very clearly when you do this. And he said, you know, you can do this to inspire yourself. He said, I'm doing this out of respect and as, as a dedicating this to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, I'll miss this one meal and do it as a practice to teach myself that I don't have to follow every desire. So you use the power of the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha and recollect that as you're doing and that will give you some inspiration. Any other questions today? Sometime after the meditation session, the body feels really warm, is that? Is there any explanation for that? The energy of the mind, as it's calming down, the mind becomes more energetic, it's more concentrated. And that tends to lead to either, the, you can experience heat, or some people experience coolness, if you're very cool. Um, it's, just, it's just that, the expression or the manifestation of the energy of the mind, the peaceful mind. I don't know how cool my, when I meditate, sometimes my arms just like, automatically like this, just move itself. Is it many times or just sort of once? Um, a few times, yeah, over the last few nights when I meditate, it's like I'm this side or this side, just automatically. But more on the right side. Don't worry about it. Don't concern yourself too much with the physical body. Just keep putting mindfulness back <coughs> onto the breath, the meditation object. You'll find all these things that, that tend to pass, fade away. I heard the new party center after submitting all the That's a new one for us. What's the meaning of it? The chant after Sabidya we were going to Sabaroko we Some other person you feel 
you're better than them, or you have a sense of ego, and I'm right, you're wrong, or I'm better than you, these kind of things. Just remember that we're all in the same, in the end we all have the same experience, we're all getting older and we're going to die. And, you know, however much the mind might build its ego up and be proud and think it's good and all that, in the end, you can only be that good we all end up dying. We're no one's better than anyone else in that, we're all on the same level in that. And when you remember that, the impermanence of life and the fact that none of us can last forever, then it makes you a bit humbler and less inflated, and it goes less inflated. And the final jump, on Monday I came and I asked about a question on the question itself. Um, when I went home, I was still thinking about the question. So the next morning when I started to meditate, and I saw the question, and instead of concentrating further on the question, what I saw is just a sentence, and then after that it reduced it to words, and then after that it become a, just a single word, and then it become a I just see the shape of it. And then after that, I wasn't thinking when it's coming to stillness. So, uh, I wasn't watching really, just very long. But then, you know, this morning, I just don't feel like I listen to any drama talk. I just want, want to listen to music. Why the, the shit in the mind there? You know, I just have enough of the teaching. I mean, basically, I don't want to concentrate anymore. It says if you want to listen to music, just go ahead and listen. <laughs> That's what I intend to do, I know that. Enough of that. <laughs> Is there something wrong, or is just a temporary uh, thing? He <laughs> <laughs> says, when you're practicing like this and say you're, you're cutting off a defilement, I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to get involved with questions and all that. It's not that the defilements will end there, they'll evolve. They're like, you know, a disease, they'll disease, you, you get a cure for one strain of the virus and then another virus will mutate and emerge. You know, the places are like this, you cut off it in one direction, so it'll come up, oh, do you want to listen to music today? Your places come up that way. So obviously if you, you know, you can't cope, you just listen to music, but what you could do if you're practicing mindfulness and you're trying to sustain your mindfulness, you say, oh, I'm not going to listen to the Dhamma, I'm not going to talk, ask questions. I'm not going to listen to music either. You just keep cutting the collators off so they've got no room to maneuver, no room to evolve. And this way you'll make your mind more and more peaceful and firm. He said when he saw you coming today, he saw that you were focused, trying to be very mindful. And he sat right at the back and he thought, oh, today she's not going to ask anything. But then he saw you perhaps your mindfulness slipped a bit and you moved forward and then the question came. <laughs> I thought he was going to go away, but to ask the question, I'd get lost again, you know. So that is mm-hmm. the So probably, you're thinking, oh, no one's asking any questions about the whole thing, all in, and then I'll finish today, so I've got to keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> but I do notice, you know, that um, when I meditate, I was doing that, there was a gap, you know, that like, a pause, a contemplating, and then sometimes I realize that I contemplate too much, then I feel I'll wash my breathing. Then I do my uh, the concentration part. But uh, two days ago, it was just like you sleep in, just like that, very smoothly without any gap. It just my automatically going to stillness. So, but this morning it's not again. This morning I have to tell myself to do, you know, searching too much things. 
this is why we have to have patience in the practice and keep going because you're very few people have a good meditation every day. You know, a good meditation and it will seem to all disappear and back to square one. But keep working at it and you'll find the good meditations do come up more often. You'll get more peace, more mindfulness. Little by little, the level of your, your awareness, your samadhi will increase. It will improve. The question was about particularly the closer defilement of greed and how as well as we practice, often other people come along and say, Oh, you're strange, or even foolish if you don't want anything in life, because they hear all Buddhists are practicing not wanting anything, not trying to let go of their desires, their attachments, and they say it's not normal, it's not a good good thing. Um, and again, just explaining that, well, there's, first of all, you have to understand there's different levels of greed. There's, say, all of us, we work in the world, we get earn money, we can buy things without having to have possessions, um, as long as we're doing that within the boundaries of Sila Dharma, within the precepts and right livelihood, not harming any other, others, not taking advantage of others, then that's alright to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but on a refined level, you could still say, well, there's still greed there, wanting to get things. But on the level of Sila, Sila Dharma, it's not, it's not greed or unwholesome in that sense. It's not going beyond the boundaries of Sila. That's the first thing, and then to understand that, well, yes, if you if you do carry on your practice, um, you see the value of dana, giving dana, practicing generosity, sharing what you have, then you'll naturally have a sense of contentment. So you won't be always wanting more and more, because you're also practicing giving away and sharing, supporting the sangha, doing charity work. So again. Um, as you practice like that, other people might, might think this is strange, why do you do that? But you just have to accept they have different opinions and they perhaps don't see the value of it yet. But it, you know for yourself if it's good and it makes you happy, that's fine. And as you contemplate, you can see, well, even if I did keep working in the world, making more and more money, I just get more and more tired and I have no time left for my spiritual practice. Um, so someone with wisdom can see that, so that's why they, they, they're not necessarily going full on to, to just accumulate more material wealth, more possessions and they start to see the value of spiritual wealth and the spiritual wealth of Buddha said is these qualities, faith, um, renunciation, generosity, uh, sila, wisdom, these kind of qualities that we develop through the practice, these are spiritual faith, spiritual wealth that will follow us right to the grave. When you die, you take your spiritual wealth with you, but of course your material wealth you can't take with you. And what other people say then, you just have to accept, well that's their views, that's okay, they can have their views. Um, But you know for yourself the happiness you're experiencing from your practice, so you don't have to worry that, you know, what they say, they say you're foolish or something, it doesn't really matter, because you know for yourself that this is not foolish, it's wise. Okay. Um, got other questions. Uh, I mean, the more that I practice the Dharma, I practice meditation, I, I feel that I become withdrawn, um, and then my interaction with other people, like colleagues at work and friends and all that, become less. And sometimes it's a bit hard at work. They they perceive it as being. Uh, because I don't talk a lot anymore, so it becomes like, um, antisocial. Yeah, antisocial, and 
let's see if that's um, I'm being arrogant. So, is this the right practice or, or I'm doing something wrong here? You have to find a balance with these things because you're still living in the world, so you're not a ordained person. So you're living in the world, you do have to mix with workmates and so on. And you have to, mainly you're still practicing mindfulness just as you would be anywhere, whether you're on your own or with other people, you practice mindfulness. But that practicing mindfulness doesn't mean to say you, you have no relationships with anyone else, you don't talk, you don't have any any social interaction with others, you can still talk, but you practice mindfulness as you talk and you do your duties and you might have to meet with others and have a certain amount of interaction, but you just maintain your mindfulness and your precepts and a sense of, you know, maintain kindness. And if you're aware of, of what your duty is, you know, you have a duty, say a job to perform and you know the role you're following, the function of that role, that job, and you're aware of that with mindfulness, it shouldn't be a problem in the interaction with other people. Then you have to find point of balance. Um, reflect that it's very normal all over the world, Thailand here, it's the same. Maybe there is, uh, there are families where one member of the family does practice, the others don't. That's quite normal. And you just make the best that you can of the situation. If, if you can, you can explain the benefits of the Dhamma practice and how you benefited from it to your partner and try and get them to at least appreciate what you're doing. And even better, if you can get them to start practicing going to the temple meditating and so on, even better. Um, it's actually very rare to find a whole family, and, uh, you know, both husband and wife, who are very committed to practice. It's quite rare, but you can do your best. And then just have a lot of patience, you know, kindness and patience. And, you know, if it's ever there is a disagreement because one wants to practice, one doesn't, you just can't use your wisdom, try to explain why, why you see it's good. And if you are genuinely practicing and you're receiving the benefits from it, you know, your calaces, your greed, your anger, delusion should be becoming more restrained, more limited, getting less. So that benefit should start to help the family in good ways and so it should improve things and there shouldn't any problems that arise, you should be able to get over them quite well because of that. Uh, I got another question, you know, that uh, just in the general. Every time I, I read the books or, or I hear the teaching of some moms, they're saying that uh, when they look at a beautiful woman, they have to look it in a sort of repulsive way. Um, I just wonder, another, is it only the male problem? Because, <laughs> <laughs> because for, for, for me personally, you know, you think the priest will be able for you to stop that, you know. But why why the mom need to do in such a standard to make that beautiful woman look ugly or repulsive and uh, like it become a woman's problem? Our problem. All these different practices are aimed at developing mindfulness in the practitioner and wisdom, understanding. And all of us as human beings, men, women, all of us we're um, if it's 
say, afflicted or caught into four main kinds of delusions which create wrong views in the mind. The first is um, the delusion or what we call vipalasa, the delusion that something that is inherently unattractive will will tend to look look on it as attractive and desirable. Uh, Something that is inherently impermanent will tend to see as permanent in our delusion. Something that is uh, inherently unsatisfactory, productive of suffering, will tend to try and see it as, as happiness, as a source of happiness. And something that is inherently not self will tend to see as a self. Uh, any aspect of life, any phenomena will tend to view with these four different delusions affecting the mind, and this is why we suffer as human beings. So. Our practice is always to bring up mindfulness, contemplate, develop understanding, and that's remedying these delusions. So in the case of um, uh, the attractiveness of the human body, you you bring your mind and your attention inwards to investigate this human body, look at your own body, and with the power of mindfulness and investigation, you start to see the unattractive or repulsive side to remedy the basic delusion that oh, the body is, is, is beautiful, it's something um, completely beautiful or all beautiful, you, you're remedying that, say, well, it has its unattractive side as well. And even if you're noticing it, other people and external objects, really the way to practice this deeply and to, where you have to go is to develop this awareness inside in your own body. And the same with the other um, delusion, seeing impermanence, seeing dukkha, seeing uh, not-self. You have to develop this with relationship to your own body, your own body and mind. And the result of that is of freeing yourself from attachments. When you see through delusions, you break through these delusions, your attachments are loosened, lessened. What's the result of that is peace. You get peace and purity of mind, purity of view, purity of wisdom. Because these delusions have been seen through, and they're no longer deluding you, so your mind becomes pure and peaceful, and that, that's the aim of the practice. Any kind of contemplation or meditation or aiming to bring the mind to peace so you know that you can be creative and there's many different ways to contemplate to bring the bring your mind to peace. Um, if you're establishing mindfulness on the breathing and you just keep doing that and you bring your mind to peace, let go of all your other concerns, what other people say about you, all this, then that's fine, do that. 
if you find contemplating your own mental states, your own liking, your own disliking, I like this person, I don't like that person, I like this what they said, I don't like what they said. Contemplating that, you can you can also bring your mind to peace. Contemplating your the impermanence of those things, those phenomena, those experiences when people are praising you, they're blaming you. Uh, contemplating the body, you can say, oh, we're all four elements, I'm just made up of four elements, they're made up of four elements. There's many ways you can contemplate, the idea being to bring the mind to peace by just breaking through whatever it is you're attaching to at that time that causes you suffering, attaching to their words, or the, that person, or yourself, all the different things we attach to. You contemplate in these different ways and you bring your mind to a sense of detachment, like you said, and you know, whichever way works is fine as long as it brings you to this, this detachment and you find you're peaceful then. It's natural, don't worry about it. It's natural people tend to have more mindfulness, try harder in the monastery or the temple when they come. But your aim is not to just leave it all behind when you go home. You want to try and incorporate it into your daily life. Try to bring up mindfulness, sila, mindfulness, discipline when you're, when you're at home. Really the temple, the monastery is something, it's an internal experience that you want to bring up in your heart. And then wherever you go, you've got it with you. It's as if you're in the monastery wherever you are. <laughs> Last question. <laughs> the last side of seeing benefits of um, the Dharma practice, but also you have these um, increasing doubts about um, um, the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Um, I tend to question stuff and have a lot of doubts. Um, will there be, you know, really cessation of suffering and of everything, or will it not be? So that all these questions are coming up, so we will have to deal with them. Can you, can you ask him to elaborate on the, the true Dharma practice? Is it normal in the beginning to have doubts like this, so don't take them too seriously? Um, the best thing to start with is just compare what you do know, because you don't know the end of suffering, so you will doubt about it, but what do you know? So you can compare now, this time, your level of mindfulness you have, the restraint in the sealer that you have, compare this with a period in the past, say when you, you didn't practice Dhamma, you didn't know much about precepts, mindfulness, and you can see probably that then you are having more confusion, more problems in your life. Now you have more understanding, more awareness, you have more peace in your life. Just that much you should be able to compare and see from your own experience in your own practice. Or also from meditation, you can see that sometimes if you meditate, you try, you probably find you get more peaceful states of mind than you normally have because at those times the sense of self is disappearing, you have less greed, less anger, less delusion, less attachment at that time because of your meditation. And even if those periods aren't every day, all the time, but when you do have them, you can again compare. If I keep practicing, experiencing more happiness, more peace of mind from letting go of these defilements like this, if I keep doing it, then this is bound to increase more often and 
go deeper in our truth, the more deeper peace, the more uh, skillful and successful I am in practicing. And so you can just see by logical extension, if I keep doing this, then I'll reach more peace, more internal peace, let go of more um, defilements and experience you know, less and less suffering if I keep doing this. You can do that as well. So contemplating like this, you can see, well, if I keep practicing, um, whatever level of mindfulness and how much suffering happiness I have now, if I keep practicing, it will gradually go down. I'll have less suffering, more mindfulness, more peace, and you know, I should eventually reach the end of suffering based on what you can see from your life now. And sometimes when you sort of associate with good man, you sort of lift the spirit of the practice really high, but other times when you see uh, someone that you know practice or just bring down the levels of confidence in the Dharma practice, so any advice on that that's sort of leading to the questions that I was asking before. Will that be cessation of suffering? Will it not be so? It's just like like that because mm-hmm. the mind is still confused. Well, you said the easiest thing for that question you start is you know then try to stay and associate with the good monks, the inspiring monks who practice well. You know, try to see them, try to hear the teaching from them. Because uh, obviously if monks aren't very well practiced, not very well behaved, they're, they're having their suffering and you've got your suffering, you know, together you're just going to pull each other down. So, you know, try and spend your time when you go to the monastery and go and find monks who are practicing so they can help you, inspire you and help you in your practice. And we're just explaining this to other questions and we're saying some people say, oh, why do you go all the way to Warburton to make offerings, listen to the Dhamma, you can go to any temple, you can go to Box Hill, go somewhere else. Um, and people, when you say you travel a long way to go to a temple, they say all kinds of different things and often they'll laugh at you and put you down. You're just saying, well, those people, they never come anyway. They're just, they just got opinions and views about things and they never come anyway. They never see the place. Other people say you're attached, you're attached to the monastery, you're attached to the teacher. And, and then said, well, people are attached to everything, aren't they? You go shopping, you're going to buy one item, you're going to sit and think about it and you look and you want to get the best and you, you know, that's normal the way the world is. So monasteries and teachers can be the same if you find it useful to go to a monastery, even if it's a long way out of town, you go and you hear the teachings, you find it peaceful, the environment is good. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you, you could say, yes, you're attached, but you're attaching to something that's good, that's helping you. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, people just use it as a simple put down, or you're attached. You, you can just say, well, you're attached, because everyone's attached to something, aren't they? And they're often attached to not very, very good things as well. Then again, should we support the lung who is not practicing? I know it's none of our business, but you know, it happens to be in, in a place of practice and this man is not practicing. So Jan said, try to think of um, it's in a positive way. Let's say you go somewhere and you meet a monk and he's not practicing, you feel he's not practicing, you can still support him, you know, in moderation, you still can support him to a, an extent, wishing to uh, help him so that he can improve, so that he can, if you feel he's not very good in his practice, well, so that he can get better and improve. You have that wish if you are supporting him or helping him. 
And also we have to be aware that standards of judging monks or other people, you know, we have different standards. Our own standard might be very high, so then everyone doesn't meet the standards, so everyone's seen as a bad monk, but then maybe that monk still has some good qualities, some good in him, that it doesn't meet our standard perhaps, but if we look carefully, contemplate, we maybe still be able to say, oh, there's some good qualities here, it's, you know, there's hope, there's, there's something that can be built on, some potential or something, and uh, we can think like this, and then we don't get caught up in what might become negative thinking or cause us suffering. Yeah. Oh. <coughs> yeah, so yeah. 